we learn so much from childhood. And I would love to speak to those individuals and say, who held your hand when it was time to cross the street? Who sat close to you during one of those, your first scary movie? Who gave you that hug when that loved one passed away and you didn't really understand the how and the why? So I would encourage you in your adult body to find someone who will hold your hand now. Tell them what your gift is. Tell them what you're imagining. Tell them what you're dreaming and ask them to hold your hand. You will find that support. You will find that foundation. You will find that steady grounding that you need to move forward. Welcome back to another episode of the Ordinary Warrior Podcast, where we celebrate the extraordinary journeys of ordinary people who endeavor to make this a more just world for all, while finding ways to safeguard their own peace. I'm your host, Holona Shaw, and I'm thrilled to bring to you stories of courage and determination that will inspire you to recognize your inner warrior. My guest today is an athlete, an educator, and an entrepreneur. She believes in taking risks. She understands how athletics can tip the scales toward one's success and that so-called failures provide invaluable life lessons. She is a powerhouse, not only on the court and in the lecture hall, but in all of the ways she engages in the world. She understands the value of true self-love aimed toward healing, and faith is at the foundation of everything. Listener, I'm honored to introduce to you my friend, Dr. Debbie Stroman. Hi, Debbie. Hello, Helena. Welcome to the Ordinary Warrior Podcast. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. It's nice to see your face. The audience doesn't get to see you, the listener, but I do. And it's twice in one week for us, which is such a treat. Absolutely. It's always good to be in your space with your wonderful husband, Theodore. It's nice to be together. And it's usually a, a special occasion. So it's always a nice extra added treat. <laughs> Debbie, when I decided to do this podcast, I had been um, bumping the idea around in my head for quite some time. And what led me to The Ordinary Warrior was thinking about how many people in my orbit do amazing things. I have access to amazing people, um, and I think everyone does, but I I have access to amazing people, some who are known and some who aren't known. And for me, it's all I'm learning about everyone as I reach out to different people to talk about um, the cool things that they're doing. And so, like I said, when I first started to think about The Ordinary Warrior, it was about the kinds of things that people are doing that for other people might look scary or stepping so far outside their comfort zone or being um, afraid to take action, that it stops them from doing the things that they want to do. And so as I have talked to you over the last couple of years, and the more I've learned about you, there's so much, so many things that you have done um, that, like I said, other people might be like, oh, I couldn't do that. You're, you, you are a professor, you are an entrepreneur. And when I told you about 
the ordinary warrior. You said something to me that I never forgot. You said something like, um, you, you work with, you're working with the people who are out here doing the work. And so I wanted to start there because when you said that to me, it immediately met, thought, made me think of the people who are out here doing the work and how are they taking care of themselves during the process. So that might seem like a kind of in the middle place to start. And I want you to take that wherever it takes you. But that's the, you were the first person that I talked to about this podcast, because what you described and what I think about as a self-care coach who specializes in helping professionals, I always think about the ways that people take care of themselves and how do they keep and protect their peace while they're out here doing the work. So tell me what that, what does that mean to you? Thank you. Thank you again for this invitation. I think as we are blessed with gifts and we decide to execute on those gifts, to deliver those gifts, to make them come alive, uh, in particular for people of color, I think you have a choice. You can move away from the community or you could work to advance the community. And I don't think it's anything conscious that I thought of. Uh, and quite possibly it's due to my background and where I grew up and how I grew up that I've always been mindful of continuing to advance the community as in don't move away from them. And so whether it's the advanced degrees, whether it's the opportunities to be in spaces that some people aren't afforded, um, whether it's uh, connecting with people, um, I've always had a sense of what about those who aren't present? those who are excluded, those who are um, facing barriers or just trying to make it day by day to not leave them behind. And not that I'm so accomplished that, you know, I'm so far ahead or in a different plane or or space, but I just have this sense of grounding um, to use the gifts to advance the community. And uh, I'd say that's that's the foundation for my work. you know, even when we think about it from an age perspective, uh, I've always felt youthful. Uh, I try to operate <laughs> with a youthful mind spirit, uh, being creative, being imaginative in all that I do. I, I just don't want to leave people behind. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I, I appreciate the way that you put it. You said, uh, you know, it's humility, what you're describing of not, you know, not seeing yourself so advanced, but it is about access. And you know, that not everyone has the same access. Um, So I think that's, that's an important, I am so sorry. Okay, so the dog interrupted was scratching on the door. And we're both trying to get back to um, the thoughts we were having. I think I asked you about I was I was making the point just that um that not everyone has access and the idea of not leaving people behind isn't about anything other than bringing people with you as you as you progress right Absolutely uh access and experience are very very important uh I grew up outside of Philadelphia in a low to middle income uh, black neighborhood surrounded by wealth. Uh, in fact, to this day, the main line uh, 
uh, it is considered uh, one of the wealthiest places in the nation. Mm-hmm. And so being um, being blessed to have access to some of the top schools in the state of Pennsylvania, which means in the in the nation, uh, that was something that uh, benefit me, benefited me and my neighborhood greatly. Uh, but on the other side, to come home and be in a segregated neighborhood, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, to to be that community that uh, people know in Wayne, Pennsylvania, Mount Pleasant, uh, that that is where uh, many of the Blacks are congregated. That's where they live. That's where they uh, find their joy and thrive. And so I definitely understand access. I definitely understand privilege. And then the other side of that is experience. As in, once you're inside of systems, once you have access to a wonderful school system, uh, great uh, medical care, uh, health care, how are you being treated? And, you know, this is something, this skin color uh, that I own and love, you can't erase that. And so being in spaces where regardless of my skill set, regardless of the gifts that I've been uh, blessed with, uh, I feel the weight of the, the structural barriers. Uh, it shows up at all levels, whether it's, um, you know, sports, whether it's business, whether it's academics, um, you know, structural racism is real. And of course, there are a whole a list of other isms that go along, you know, in, in these spaces as well. But the access and the experiences has certainly shaped me. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I start to introduce you to people like in our house and we're having a hangout, I always start with, remember Debbie, she played basketball, she, you know, and every, okay. So I always start with that. And this, you, you are an athlete. I'm going to let you tell it, but you're an athlete. And I would love for you to talk about how you got from how being a college athlete, um, how it informed the decisions that you made um, career wise and the, and the, the things that you're doing right now. Yes, I am an athlete. And as Phil Knight says, the uh, founder of Nike says, if you have a body, you're an athlete. So, Helena, you're an athlete, too. I'll take <laughs> well, it. <laughs> Thank you. But I, came, I came out of the womb as an athlete. Uh, my mother was athletic and our neighborhood of uh, church and sports. That was our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I play just about every sport to this day. I still love kickball. It's probably my favorite. Uh, but I really excelled in basketball. And I was blessed to receive the opportunity to attend the University of Virginia. Officially, I walked on. I couldn't decide between Berkeley and Virginia. My oldest brother had gone to Berkeley, but I decided at the last minute to accept Virginia. And uh, I walked on because at that point, the scholarship was gone. Uh, I was so late in my decision making. But I would say to this day, collectively, the best four years of my life. Uh, I just met so many uh, people, wonderful people. Virginia is a big part of my life. And so I had four years there. I was the captain of the team. Uh, At one point, we got as high as 11th in the nation. So we were the beginning of this Virginia women's basketball movement. And of course, we see how it's played out over the years. In particular, we're all very, very, um, very, very happy for Dawn Staley and how she's taken it even to the next level with that Virginia DNA as she's the head coach of South Carolina. Uh, So after basketball, I worked for a year with the NCAA. Uh, They have a big brother, big sister program. It was called Volunteers for Youth. And I was one of the leaders on on grounds at UVA for that. And I became a national director for that program, traveling the nation. 
assisting with programs and community leaders, helping young people be connected with uh, mentors and with athletic departments. I found out that University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill was starting a master's degree program in sport administration. And so I said, I want to stay with the ACC. I had connections. Uh, Mr. John Swafford, former commissioner of the ACC, he worked at Virginia. He left Virginia to take the athletic director position at Carolina. And uh, he was very supportive of me, wrote a recommendation. And lo and behold, I became a Tar Heel. Uh Uh, So continue with that work. And then the nerd bug kicked in again. I am a nerd. I I will admit that scholar athlete. And I decided to get my doctorate degree. And uh, for no particular rhyme and reason, I just love I just love learning. I was a history major undergrad at UVA. And so the uh, the love of words of the written word, which I received from my mother, she was an avid reader. I mean, she read all the times books just stacked next to her nightstand. Uh, when she came home from work, she had she always read the newspaper. So I believe that I mirrored that. And so I went to Capella University, uh, which is based in Minneapolis. Uh, it was one of the earlier, earlier universities who had really jumped on the, the benefits of long distance learning. Now, at the Smart. doctorate level, yeah, doctorate mm-hmm. level, you do have more in-person uh, interaction. So I finished that degree in business, leadership, organizational behavior. And then in 2007, uh, I decided to accept the invitation from the current chancellor at UNC to come and be a part of the faculty here at, at UNC. So the decision making was was divine. And it was also my just following uh, following the steps that had been ordered in terms of uh, you love learning and why not be at one of the finest institutions in the country? If we do say so ourselves. <laughs> it's true. We're, we, we're, we're Tar Heels by default, I guess. We yes. don't have a choice. <laughs> but proudly. Um, so I, I, I'm really curious about how you see, if I can put this the right way, sports translating beyond the court and how that leads to leadership. Absolutely. It's been said that sports are the front porch for universities. Mm -hmm. It is the way to show off your university. There is no other entity organization program that can draw 50 to 100,000 people to a campus for a weekend. The best violinist, the best artist, the best lecturer, it's not going to happen. And so if you have a a good, a solid sports program, you bring people in for that sporting event, and then you take the time, you're strategic to bring activities around that. So there are lectures that take care around that event. There are musical performances. There are museum, uh, you know, visits and open houses. Um, There are ways to bring your alumni together from that department. So that's what sports does. Now, way back when, it wasn't as commercialized. And so it was brought on to higher education because it served as a very, very important pillar in terms of physical health. We read better, we write better, we engage with people better when we feel good about ourselves. So understanding the body as in physical education was critical, mind, body, and soul. It's moved, it's morphed now to more commercialism. And some people question, well, why do we have this big time sports at our universities? There's still this 
history of it has value. Now we look not necessarily in terms of studying the body unless you choose that major, but now it's the sense of it brings us joy. It brings us eustress, right? It's helping us come together and bond so that we can all be on one accord. And of course, we can fundraise off of it. When there's a winning basketball team, dollars go up, right? Yeah. Interest goes up. So that's the connection there. Uh, but there is no doubt that uh, sports are very, very important to many people in the sense of the values that it helps uh, develop, whether it's teamwork, discipline, uh, never quit, um, uh, being kind, all of that. Uh, and it's been noted, I can't remember the major research firm that conducted the research, but it's like 85, 90% of women executives played sports. So there's something to be said for that. Interesting. I remember in, I want to say it was in the 80s, late 80s, maybe early 90s, and it could have been later, but um, I think it was Nike did an ad campaign that talked about girls and women in sports and how, and it talked about confidence, of course, but then the the um, reduction in um, domestic violence, all of the different ways that being involved in sports was, you know, not only healthy, but in some ways a lifesaver um, for so many girls and women. So I really appreciate that's really interesting about CEOs being um, yes. being competitive athletes. You have to be tough. And certainly, you know, when you're a youngster, you're playing with boys. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're not giving you a break. Mm -hmm. uh, and in many cases, uh, you have outstanding girls who are better than the boys. So yeah. then you get the abuse. I mean, I remember going into Woolen Gym and playing here at Chapel Hill. And for the guys who didn't know that I played in college, they didn't want to be offended. They didn't want to have me score on them. So they would do things that they wouldn't do with a male opponent. They would elbow me. They would push me a certain way. Uh, they would try to do things to um, take me off of my game. And it was only because I was a woman. And that's the reality in the society. It can be uncomfortable for, for assertive women to step into that space and be confident and be independent and to call our own shots. Mm -hmm. So does that um, toughen you or jade you or uh, is everyone at risk of either one of those things? <laughs> <laughs> I feel good about it. I know who they are. They show their colors pretty fast to me. I can size them up. So yeah. I get to, I guess, play my own psychological game in terms of how I'm going to show up with them. Do I want to kind of ease into it and then all of a sudden come out with a very firm, direct statement uh -huh. and go deeper with my voice tone, bring in a little bass and tenor, right? Yeah. <laughs> or do I want to stay very light and pleasant? <laughs> you know, so you get to play those little psychological games. Well, that must be fun. <laughs> a little bit of payback. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so the idea about the people who are out here doing the work, because we, uh, we were here in the spring, and I want to say it was probably Easter because we have our seasonal celebrations here, um, and you said that you were going back to Costa Rica in a couple of days in a couple of days. And I said, I said, this is the third time in a year. And you said, yes, it is. And I said, okay, I knew something was coming. And when you told me about it, it was just so incredibly exciting. So can you talk about the sort of trajectory of, um, of Costa Rica? Where did it come from? And how did you get there? 
Wow. Costa Rica. Just a beautiful place for a number of reasons. And I'm sure everyone who's followed it, fallen in love with Costa Rica has their particular reasons. But I'll start off with just the spirit of the nation in the sense that they don't have an army. And armies we know are designed to attack. They, de- they defend, they attack. So they don't have that spirit there. Uh, we have some um, policies, treaties, I guess you could say, with them. So that if anything were to happen, we would step in as in the United States. I love their, their focus on nature. They're very, very particular about how they have the land developed. Um, I also just love the Caribbean spirits that, that's there. The Jamaicans who were brought in to help building the railroad and working at the banana um, plants or plantations, um, many of them stayed. And so on the Caribbean side, it is very, very Jamaican-like. Marcus Garvey spent time there, had a headquarters there. And so I just love seeing the colorful uh, nature of the Caribbean in Latin America, Central America. Uh, so I've fallen in love with it just off of a trip with one of uh, my girlfriends I grew up with back home outside of Philadelphia, Sean, and we went and had a wonderful time. And then I went back again and I visited another part of the country. Then I went back again. And this last time I ended up staying at a retreat center. It's called the Goddess Gar- Garden. Goddess Garden, And uh, I was just moved by that, that facility, by the people there, uh, the people who were present. And I found out that there was some land available for sale. And so I just purchased on the spot. Uh, Now, that was definitely divine, because if I would have thought about it, critical thinking, go through the process, I would say, oh, no, what are you doing? You live in North Carolina. (laughs) You're not buying land down here. All the gremlins Uh, that can talk you out of it. Absolutely. They are very, very loud and and, and persistent. Mm -hmm. And so I did it. And so the next stage is to build a house and to do work down there. Uh, Wi-Fi is all across the world in most places. And uh, as long as I can zoom in, uh, I can do the work. Uh, I also am excited about bringing leaders, as in people who are doing this work, people who are doing the heavy lifting to take them out of the toxicity of the United States, even though it is glorious at times, to come to a place where you can be at peace, enjoy nature, and we can have uh, share best practices with one another. How do we support one another? How do we recharge one another? How do we pour into one another? How do we go back with some additional tools to be better at what we do? Uh, so that is my vision, and it is coming alive. And with support like you and others, uh, it will be something that will be long-lasting. Well, it's exciting. It's really exciting. And uh, there are two different directions I want to go with this. So I'm going to pin them both because otherwise I might forget. One is um, I want you to talk about who are the people doing the work. When you say that, who are you referring to? The other piece I want to talk about is how do you, I know you said it was divine and I, I agree with that. I, I agree that that's real. And the gremlins also that we talked about because so many people will stop short of making this type of sort of life-changing decision and it's because we there's uncertainty there's unpredictability we're afraid we've never done it before and a lot of us are very afraid to step outside of our comfort zone if we don't feel like or believe that we have all of the pieces in place So either one of those things is fine with me because I could listen to you talk all day. (laughs) I think 
there is no doubt if you don't have butterflies in your stomach, that's what we say in sports, if you don't have some bit of anxiety before you go up to bat, before you give that speech, before you sing that song, then something's wrong with you. I think it is human nature to have some type of sense of this is a risk. And so what we have to measure, and over the years, my experience, the measurement happens within 10 seconds, right? But for others, it might take a week, it might take a year. But I immediately draw on my faith and know that even in the worst case scenario, it's going to be a great lesson. Mm -hmm. Losing money, it's going to be a great lesson. People not showing up at your performance, it's going to be a great lesson. Um, If you make some people uncomfortable with how you show up, it's going to be a great lesson. I always believe that God opens doors and God closes doors. And we have to equip ourselves with the tools so that we recognize what's happening. How do we recognize? It's by having a circle of uh, supportive, unconditional, loving friends and family. So that if it doesn't work out, they're there to say it's going to be okay. If it doesn't work out, they're able to give you that loan. If it's not okay, they're able to pray with you. So I have that belief. I have that faith that it's always going to work out for the best. Some people will go to scripture. Some people will say, well, that's karma. Some people will say, it's just, I'm just that confident. However you categorize it, but you have to take that first step. You have to detangle or untangle yourself from those things that continue to pull you to status quo, to tradition, to uh, you got to stay in this lane. You've got to untangle, get that off of you. Everybody was meant to thrive. Everybody was meant to soar. Everybody's supposed to be an eagle. There's a wonderful parable. I want to say his name is James Morrissey, an African man who wrote a parable called The Chicken and the Egg strongly encourage people to read that. It's been parsed, it's been dissected now and different people are delivering it different ways, but it was an original uh, message to Africans saying, you're not a chicken, you're an, you're, excuse me, an eagle, chicken and an eagle, that you can fly, you can soar. But so many things, how we're socialized and conditioned is to keep us as sheep, to keep us uh, always asking for, what am I supposed to do next? Versus sitting with yourself, being still, being still, listening to, listening to God, listening to the universe and hear how you have something that you need to birth. You need to share it with the world. And so um, it's about having faith and knowing that it's going to be okay if it doesn't work out. And there's so much about it. Yes. And there's so much about it that is, is us worrying about what people are going to say or think, which is, it really doesn't have any impact on us whatsoever, but it can be one of the most powerful, most influential um, voices in our heads is the detractors. And I know that that strength, it can strengthen us and it can motivate us forward, but it can also be really paralyzing. And, um, and tradition, I think has a lot to do with that. We go to, we go to high school, we go to college, we get a job and we work 40 hours and you have to work 40 hours to get the paycheck. And there are so many other ways to do it, but that creates like a fear and a scarcity, I think, um, that can stop people from taking the risky steps. Yeah. And I think sometimes you know, for people who've been equipped, people who've been poured into by 
loved ones, um, by colleagues, um, you, you quickly learn that, um, that you can do this and that they are going to provide sound counsel for you. Um, so again, going back to who is in your circle, Mm -hmm. they said that you can tell a lot about a person by the five people that are closest to them, not including family. Right. So who are, do those people represent you? And, um, and, and the risks will vary. You know, somebody saying, you know, I'm going to take a vacation in another country. That might be a big risk for them. Mm-hmm. For others, you know, to leave the country, like I'll leave every week. You know, I've got global <laughs> entry, I've got passports and everything. Yeah. So we can't judge what someone's risk might be. But do understand that, um, you know, if you have the right support circle around you and your faith is strong, that is going to be okay. And- I've heard it also expressed as it's like the sum of those five, the habits of the sum of those five people are your habits too. So it's really important to, you know, check yourself every once in a while and check the people who are around you to make sure that they're pouring into you and pouring into themselves in good and healthy ways so that they can also be solid supporters and that we're not draining each other in either direction. Absolutely. Um, And so that brings me to the people who are doing the work, who are you working with? Who are you supporting? And what is it that you all are doing together? Where do I begin? Wow. (laughs) So I work in two spaces now. I'm pretty clear on those two spaces. One is sport business and one is race and racism, education and strategy. On the sport business side, um, you know, my students, uh, they have just uh, made me a better person. And I've been able to co-create and dream and imagine with them. And so I've hosted a basketball analytics summit, uh, nine of them, uh, where we're bringing in the best and the brightest and pouring into those people who are trying to um, speak to the the numbers, the math, the statistics, the tools uh, that are used in basketball. And so trying to do that heavy lifting. Now, fast forward, because I started this a decade ago. Now, just about every, not just about every sports team has analytics folks Mm -hmm. and at the college level, right? So I feel that I've been able to pour in those, to those folks. Uh, Another area around the sport business, which actually kind of merges into the race and racism as well. I'm the director for the Black Men's Brain Health Conference, uh, looking at uh, brain dementia, in particular for Black men. And we do that every year at the Super Bowl. Uh, so pouring into those folks who are trying to help people understand the pain, um, the the trauma, uh, the difficulties when a loved one has Alzheimer's. Okay, so that would be an example of the work on the sport business side. On the race and racism side, uh, being a, a national trainer with the Racial Equity Institute has changed my life. Uh, they gave me the framework. They gave me the 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 guardrails, the model to understand how we got to where we are today and how do we move forward, mobilizing, organizing, uh, working with our language. So pouring into people who are doing this work, trying to bring the world together, in particular around the equity around race. Again, there are many other isms, uh, but the racial piece to me is at the forefront. Mm -hmm. So doing that work. Uh, I'd also say in the sport industry, um, again, it is that front porch. It draws a lot of attention. We've got many influencers that can actually uh, mold 
how society moves. Uh, so I would say making sure that people who have this influence are educated. So when that microphone is placed in front of them and they're asking them about Colin Kaepernick, when they're asking about race norming in the NFL, when they're asking about how come there aren't more um, people of color in the front office, they are equipped. They have the language. They have the understanding of the history and how to speak well, how to be informed. It reminds me of when people say, vote, got to vote. Everybody, you must vote. You must be an informed voter. Yes. That's the key. Know why why you're voting and what you're voting for. Yes. Absolutely. So that's the work. That's the work. And so um, what are you, this is tricky ground because diversity and equity and inclusion, DEI, have, uh, are, it, it you know like self care it's kind of a buzzword and popular and i don't know if everyone really knows what we're talking about when we're talking about that um so for the listener who doesn't know what what does it mean and i i'm i'm curious i took a note um earlier about it, is it what it purports to be are we doing what we're supposed to be doing in this country or anywhere on the issue of DEI? Is it, are we honest? And is it what we, what it purports to be? So unless you live in a cave somewhere or you're just a naysayer, there is no doubt whether you're talking about narratives as in storytelling, or if you're talking about the data, and I'm talking about peer-reviewed data from our top institutions. There are inequities happening between races in this country. That is a that is a truth, and that is a fact. And so the question becomes: What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? If it matters that we lift up all of humanity, that we give everybody an opportunity for resources and uh, to have an experience, then that means we have to do something about it. And there are some. I'll just say some locations, some regions, some countries that are doing it better than others. And sadly, education, excuse me, language becomes one of the major barriers in this space because there are those who are working to keep things inequitable. There are those who are working to keep things unequal. As sad as that might be, as tragic as that might be, as evil as it might be, that is the reality. And so the work is to speak to those folks who have that inclination to make things right. It's not meant to spend time with people who are naysayers, who don't even believe that inequities are happening. That's where we can't focus on that. We have to focus on those people who just need a bit more information. They need some clarity. They need some understanding. That's where the work needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Because I truly believe that there are more good people in this in this nation. There are more people who do understand that we are 99.98% alike, according to the Human, Human Genome Project. And that wasn't just a, a few wonderful American scholars. We're talking about a 13-year study, $2.7 billion study with researchers all across the world saying that we're 99.9% .9 alike. In fact, I like how one anthropologist puts it, that we're not first cousins, we're not second cousins, we're somewhere between 45 and 50. And I only wish that we could remember that when we see people that don't look like ourselves. Mm -hmm. So the work is necessary. 
uh, the language piece. Uh, diversity now is a, uh, a scary word, a threatening word. Um, you know, we can still use equity a bit. Um, the, the inclusion piece, I mean, how can someone be against inclusion? But yet they're out there, right? They are. Uh, so we have to be mindful of how we use the language. Um, the research says that diversity training doesn't move the needle in organizations. Now, am I one to say, well, don't do any diversity training? I'm not going to say that. But that's why I, I am in the space of race and racism. Diversity can be watered down. Diver- diversity can be, um, can be abused and all of that. So I'm very clear in how I show up. I'm talking about race and racism. Uh, but yes, it, it has been co-opted, uh, although there are still wonderful, wonderful leaders out there trying to do this work uh, to bring uh, better results in their organizations. And this is the other thing that's, well, it's not surprising. Nothing surprises me, surprises me in this space anymore. But they even have top research institutions, whether it's McKinsey, whether it's MacArthur. I mean, just go down the list. And they're even saying that when you have more diversity, and I'm not talking about diversity of thought, right, or geography, right? When you have diversity in terms of language and skin color, you get better results. Mm-hmm. But yet we have the naysayers. Well, and I agree that not everyone, that's why I asked if we, are we doing what we purport to do? Because, and I know you are, I, I'm talking about collectively because, um, you know, they're using the words race and racism makes a lot of people really uncomfortable and they shut down. And I'm not suggesting not using that language at all. I, I'm a proponent of discomfort because you're probably going to learn something and grow a little, if not a lot, if you are in an uncomfortable situation. I think you said that you said that earlier. You know the the risks. Um, there's so much room for learning and growth when there are those risks. But I agree that there are people who try and shut it down. And diversity of thought is great, but that's not all there is to it. And I'm not speaking to those people who um, who will shut down. I'm not trying to convince them. There are too many people out there who want this, who want to learn, who understand what's at stake. We're in crisis mode. I like what uh, a gentleman said on the show called The Crown, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to read this quote. Uh, The quote said, I am an educator. Do you leave your politics at the door? No. My politics are the reason I walk through the door every day. That's powerful. It suggests that we can fracture ourselves to suit different spaces. And it's not actually true. We can pretend, but it's not actually true that we can separate out those parts of us. Um, I am really uh, interested also in how, how did you end up doing the men's brain health initiative? Um, And a follow-up to that is about the retreats that you're offering is that you have specifically, you have an open retreat and you have a men's retreat. So I'm curious to know uh, what it is that you focus on in that respect. That's different. Well, thank you for that, for this opportunity to share. So the Black Men's Brain uh, Conference, a gentleman named Robert Turner, Dr. Robert Turner, he came to UNC, I'd say about 10 years ago as a postdoc. And I had the opportunity to work with him, to pour into him. And we struck up a a long life, a lifetime relationship, great friendship. He's at the George Washington uh, University now. And he decided to take his research into this space. 
He played football at James Madison. And as he said, I spent enough time in the NFL to have a cup of coffee. Okay. But still make the league. <laughs> and uh, he decided to go down this path and he stays close to me. We have been talking about doing different things. I've had him on my podcast. We've done some different workshops together. And uh, he partnered with uh, a wonderful woman at Fordham, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Monica uh, Rivera Mint. And between the two of them, uh, they received a grant, National Institutes of Health, Alzheimer's Association. And uh, we actually partner with the NFL Alumni Association as well, understanding that um, the trauma that, that can occur with football experience, professional football experience, college football experience, it just blends. It all makes sense. And so I was asked to help lead the conference. And so knowing my work here at UNC, my appointment is in the Gilling School of Global Public Health, uh, knowing my background in sports, knowing my relationships with athletes all across uh, various sports, it, it was a no-brainer to, to, for them to ask me to come in and serve in that way. Uh, so it's a wonderful opportunity. We also teach, we educate. We have a group of what we call emerging scholars, as in scholars, uh, brown and black scholars at various universities all across the country who are interested in studying and learning in this space. And we nurture them for a year, a year and a half, uh, providing them access to top researchers, uh, providing them with workshops and ways that they can be better at uh, what they aspire to be. Uh, so that's the Black Men's Brain Health Conference. And then in terms of the retreats, um, yes, I was very, very intentional. Uh, there is no doubt that I believe that men of color, Black men need to leave this country and spend time with one another. And so I've been able to recruit, uh, and it wasn't hard because there are many uh, Black male therapists who would love to serve Black men. And so I found two, identified two wonderful gentlemen who would lead that, that session. Uh, I'll just come in and say hi in the morning. Uh, mm -hmm. They need to talk to themselves. Um, it might not be so focused on race and racism, but I know that will be multiple elephants in the room. Mm -hmm. uh, but how they transition from sport careers, how do they transition from their jobs? How do they have uh, quality relationships with their loved ones, their partners, their, their parents and grandparents, their children? Um, how do they navigate, uh, you know, being the only one in the room, right? So I think it's important for them to get away, have the healing space of Costa Rica, uh, for they can, they can do that work in, in a wonderful, beautiful setting. And what is it different for women? Yes. So the June session is open to everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, it can have various uh, sexual orientations, gender, um, races, uh, however you show up. Uh, but that work is much more intentional in terms of uh, the work that we do to heal people. And so we have therapists there. We have, um, I'm going to have a smorgasbord of ways to heal, whether that's horseback riding, whether it's being at the hot springs, whether it's fireside chats, whether it's uh, African dance, yoga, it will be a wide range of activities. Um, my curriculum, my race realities curriculum is a big part of that, which is awareness, understanding and application. And then that fourth pillar of healing, uh, we do that in Costa Rica. Uh, so it will be more in terms of how do we share with one another? Uh, we'll pass the talking stick. I don't want to stand up and be a lecturer. Uh, I can learn from all these leaders as well. We can all learn from one another. So the idea is to come in and share and talk about how we, na how we navigate 
And to your point, how do we take care of one another? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a perfect um, segue, I think, to taking care of each other and taking care of ourselves. So what you have described, um, there's, you know, there's so I'm a self-care coach. I can't help it. Some people uh, bristle at the term because it is like other things overused. But I think the reality is just like on the airplane, you have to put on your own mask or you're unconscious when you're helping the person next to you. You can't help the person next to you because you're unconscious. We all have to really pour into ourselves in a way that a lot of people are not um, educated to do, educated and uh, inspired uh, uh, or what have you. Um, so what what are the things, I'm getting ready to start a new series, I've decided what works for you, what works for me, what works for you. So I'm curious what your self-love, self-care um you know, practices are, rituals or traditions? Do you have anything that's regular? And how is it that while you're doing all of this stuff that can really deplete you, how Mm. do you um, replenish for yourself? Very blessed to come out of the womb as an athlete. So movement is very, very important to me. But I want to start off with faith. So I start off in the morning with prayer, quiet time. I've been blessed to be with Um, two other sisters for the past four years praying at 615 in the morning, Mm -hmm. a collective prayer circle. And that has just helped me, blessed me in so many ways, uh, Cecilia and Sean. So that's been wonderful. Um, I will also say that movement and dance, music and dance. Uh, If someone had a camera on to watch me around my house, oh my gosh, they will say, what is going on with her? When the song hits, I stop, I dance. I dance in the evening. I put on music and I dance. I found a wonderful app and I'm going to promote it. It's called Body Groove. Uh Uh, Just just dancing. I love to dance. I love Mm -hmm. to dance. Uh, The athletic piece. I don't play golf as much as I used to. Some people just say that is amazing that you're not playing golf anymore because I used to teach it. I used to play. I used Uh to live at Finley Golf Course, you know, here in Chapel Hill. Uh, But I fell in love with the bike. I've got a bike. Well, I have a few bicycles, but my favorite is an electric bike. I strongly recommend it. Um, My ego is such that I didn't want anybody seeing me walking a bicycle up a hill in Chapel Hill. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, so I got the electric bike and it's a great workout. Um, That's really smart because I would do the same thing. I live in a hilly neighborhood and like yes. if I move away from my house, it's immediately uphill. <laughs> yeah, no. And I've got enough trophies and rings to justify if anybody's saying, oh my gosh. Like, no, I've been there. I've been at the top. And I'm, I'm using my electric bike. Yeah. Uh, I walk the neighborhood. I'm a part of a wonderful national organization called Girl Trek. Mm-hmm. where we have over a million black women walking for health. Um, also, I'm a part of Black Girls Do Bike. We have a chapter here in the greater Raleigh area uh, where I bike, um, whether it's Raleigh, Durham, uh, Chapel Hill, or, um, you know, with um, state or, you know, trips. There are trips all across the country where you can take your bicycle. In fact, I'm curious, I'm thinking about even doing one of these overseas bicycle uh, ventures. Uh-huh. Um, Anywhere in not particular? Shooting- well, I'm in love with Africa and um, and Latin America. Yeah. So I'd have to start there. Uh, but 
on my bucket list, I, I have not gone to Italy. And uh, I would love to go to Italy. I love Italian food, Mediterranean food. I want to hit that part of the, the world. Yeah, that's on um, our short list too of all of, I mean, we've been to a lot of European countries, but Ted included, we've never been to Italy. And in the fall, in the spring, this past spring, uh, our younger child uh, did a an overseas school trip to Rome during uh, Holy Week and uh, insisted that we not be chaperones. So we didn't get the Italy trip. <laughs> He got the Italy trip. So now that's on our, our short list again. Right, we're still. We'll have to think about doing that together. Yes. Now. I don't know yes. if I can do it on a bike, but. Oh, okay. We I don't have to run, bike. I can <laughs> run alongside you <laughs> and stop to eat. Oh, gosh. Yes. Uh, biking, walking. I'm not playing basketball anymore. I'm too competitive. And of course, um, you know, the, the knees, the, the concern about the knees and the Achilles and all of that. Yeah. Uh, but I definitely stay active and, and it starts in the morning with prayer and quiet time meditation. Mm-hmm. That I, I like to hear you talk about the different kinds of ways that you care for yourself, because I think that there is such a misconception about what self-care is. And it's really anything that feels good and makes you feel good and healthy and strong. Um, in or relaxed. Yes, relaxed. Let me yeah. share one more that came yeah. from my family. So in the neighborhood that I grew up, uh, the Stromans, we were known as the conversationalists, uh, the ones who are always wrestling with deep topics, mm-hmm. uh, very race conscious family. And so I've always enjoyed sitting with people and having conversation. Mm-hmm. And I've continued that. Um, yeah. You know, in every house that I've lived in, I've always opened the house uh, to have just conversation. So I do fireside chats at my house. Um, we just sit in the back there and watch the fire and talk about life yeah. and how we're navigating that and celebrating one another. So I'd say conversation is a big part of my self-care. Mm-hmm. Sisters and girlfriends for yes. me. So I would imagine that there's, uh, you know, those tight female relationships are so important. Absolutely. Yeah. They feed us, they nurture us, they check us, right? Yeah. We all need accountability in our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And women are good for that. Yes. (laughs) For for better or for worse sometimes. But yeah, the trusted people who who check us and and check in on us um, are so critically important. Um, What would you say uh, to a person who has those butterflies and has an idea that they feel has been placed there. It's not just theirs. It's been placed there, but is maybe afraid to take that first step toward action. We learn so much from childhood. And I would love to speak to those individuals and say, who held your hand when it was time to cross the street? Who sat close to you during one of those, your first scary movie? Who gave you that hug when that loved one passed away and you didn't really understand the how and the why? So I would encourage you in your adult body to find someone who will hold your hand now. Tell them what your gift is. Tell them what you're imagining. Tell them what you're dreaming and ask them to hold your hand. You will find that support. You will find that foundation. You will find that steady grounding that you need to move forward. 
Who is that person that will hold your hand? Mm-hmm. I love that. If you don't have one, call me. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's perfect timing. Tell us where we can find you on social media. What is your podcast? And that's all I can think of right now. You're, tell us about your podcast and, sure. and where we can find you on social media. So, you know, everything this digital means it's everywhere, right? It's global. Uh, But I am very blessed to be a part of the WCHL Chapel Borough team, Mm -hmm. a wonderful group of colleagues and folks in the media space who've given me the opportunity to let this voice out. Uh, Just wonderful, wonderful leadership, Aubrey uh, Williams there. Mm -hmm. So the podcast is called If You Only Knew, and you can Google it. If You Only Knew, uh, Stroman, it'll pop up. Uh, I also write for them and I write for Medium. And that column is called Never Too Far. Uh, my handles on social media is at Dr. Stroman, Dr. Stroman, Dr. Stroman. And uh, emails can be sent to info, info at dstroman.com. Thank you, Debbie. I'm so glad we got to Dr. Stroman. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I get to see you socially. Um, and this has been really interesting just to be able to um, talk more deeply about the work that you're doing, um, the contributions you're making to the world, because you are, and I'm really grateful for you. And thank you. Thank you again for all that you do and how you take care of yourself, which means you're able to take care of others. So I'm blessed by this time with you. Thank you for listening to the Ordinary Warrior Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today and that it gives you encouragement and maybe just a little bit of company on your journey. Remember, there's strength in numbers. Join us next time for a new guest and inspiring conversation. In the meantime, take action and take care. Until we meet again in the break room where ordinary warriors find their tribe.